I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. How do you measure the well-being of a society? We know that that's more than GDP. Many explore subjective indicators such as satisfaction, happiness, anxiety, a sense of being worthwhile. But can we really address well-being without thinking of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities when we know that the annual Closing the Gap indicators have shown little, if any, progress? I've been fortunate for many things in life. In recent months, I've had the very good fortune to work closely with broadcaster and journalist Charles Puckiner of Connection Matters Radio, an Aboriginal man. When I asked Charles to do this podcast, it was intended to be a talk with a mate with no real agenda or plan. So this is my yarn with the very thoughtful and decent Charles Parkiner, which covers some broad and heartfelt territory. A significant indicator of the well-being of our nation relates to the treatment and well-being of our Indigenous, and the bridging of the gap report is not pleasant reading. So thought I should talk to my workmate, Charles Parkiner, to get his take on things. I don't think that there's a problem at all that we talk about these things. It's reality that in this country we've hidden so much from the truth over the years, especially the truth and the treatment of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people over the past 230 years. As far as I'm concerned, gloves are off. Let's just put the topics on the table and yarn about them, mate. And Charles, you know I'm always happy to yarn with you. And in in that sense, it was really an opportunity to have a yarn with a mate. But There's also an issue that I shouldn't be taking, presumably, your view as the views of all the Indigenous. That's absolutely correct. It's a bit of a bone of contention within our community is that quite often non-Aboriginal people, authorities and organisations will go to an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people and ask for advice and assume that that advice is valid right across the entire country. What they haven't taken into account is the fact that there are numerous nations, an enormous number of nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations right across this country. There are any number of laws, that's L-O-R-E-S, cultural mores and other influences that make one person's opinion totally different to an opinion or cultural correctness in another part of the country or the state or even in a city. So one Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person cannot, I believe, speak the gospel for everyone. I'm really glad you mentioned that, Charles, because I did want to talk about, you know, some of the social no-nos that that are very common, and, and I presume that's a really big one in terms of, you know, mucking up consultation. How does that work when the mob kind of gets integrated and even though some members of the Indigenous community might be on the lands of other members, how do you actually negotiate or navigate your way through that consultation? Wow, that's one question with a myriad of questions underlying that. (laughs) So we'll see how we go with this and I won't be able to answer every single one in the next 12 minutes or so. Let's give it a bash. Just to establish myself, I and I would like to, of course, and I should have done this at the beginning, but pay my respects to our elders who are past and present. 
I currently live, work and play on the lands of the Wadangeti Woiwara people of the Kulin Nation and I have great respect for their elders past and present and also for those who are emerging because it is to our leaders of the future that we are relying on so much, quite frankly, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people out there who may be listening in my respects. I do live on the lands of the Wadangeti Woiwara as I said, I'm in Heidelberg, West in Melbourne, but this is not my traditional country. My ancestors come from Tasmania. Now, whether that is the Palawa people or the Bunurang people, we have no idea. Because of the history of my family, I can never lay claim to my own mob. And we've tried and we've tried and it's a very difficult thing and that's not a story for right now. But for me, living in Melbourne for the past 12 years, it, it was a big thing to come down from New South Wales and knowingly set up home without permission from the traditional owners. And it actually irked me for quite a few years until at some stage I established a relationship with a number of elders of the Wadangeti and, and explained this to them. And I was assured that as long as I respected the land and that acknowledged constantly that this land was a, well, it was sovereign land. <laughs> there, there are sovereigns over this land that predate the invasion of several hundred years ago and the sovereigns are the Wadangeti people. And I was cautioned, look, just live a, a good life here. You know, your life is for the community. And... That, for me, makes it a lot easier for me. And I know for a lot of other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, when they do move away from their traditional lands, it can be difficult until such stage as they're connected with traditional owners. What does connection with the land look like? What is it? Okay, well, for me, it's very different to what the connection to land might be for traditional owners living on their own country. But for me, connection to country is, as I mentioned before, it's respect for community. And this is what was asked of me of the Wadangeti elders to whom I spoke initially. And I'm very connected with my community. I work within my community. There is not, I believe, a day that goes by that I'm not communicating with other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who live within my community. And frankly, I, I can't think of one of them, and I'll probably upset one or two of my friends in this, who are traditional owners on this country. We are from all over the place. There were Rajuri, there are Yorta Yorta, uh, there are Wadarang, they're from everywhere. And Noongar, of course, we've got Muddies from South Australia. It's that community that's my connection and that grounds me. And I'm never more connected, I think, to myself than when I'm with this amazing hodgepodge of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that I call my community living on this country here. And that, to me, is, is my connection. That's where I learn so much of my culture. A lot of discomfort hearing that, Charles, only in the context that, from what you've said, it sounds as though disconnection would be personally, socially, in a health sense, devastating for members of that community? It can be. And, look, in my work as, as a journalist, 
I've interviewed quite a number of Aboriginal people who've got the same experience. They simply do not know and they've resigned themselves to the fact that they will not know their mob, their nation, their clan. And it is initially devastating, there's no doubt about it, when that realisation hits, especially for people who try to live a life as an Aboriginal person, and please don't ask me what that means, not in this interview, okay, that's just too deep for me. But once they have community, once they are within a gathering place, for example, and there are a number of gathering places right around Melbourne and Victoria, there's Mullum Mullum, there's Willow Moraine, we're activating one at uh, Barbun and Beak at Heidelberg West, and that's the community and it's that support and that acceptance and that sharing of culture within those communities, which is crucial, I think, to your well-being, to your, your cultural grounding and to your growth and to just your sense of being. I know they're all a little bit airy-fairy concepts, but they're very hard to explain. But in that sense, Western religion in some ways is an airy-fairy concept. You can't, you can't grab hold of it. There's elements of emotion yep. and faith that go with that. You and I have talked before and bunjils come into the conversation. What's the importance of bunjil, the eagle? Well, bunjil, of course, is the, the creator spirit, the, the eagle. A great number of nations of the Kulin nations have bunjil as their, their creator spirit. And it really came home to me one day when, oh, probably only around about 12 months ago, when I met with my elder, now I'm 62, yet I have a cultural leader and elder uh, who is also not a Wadangeti Woiwadung man. He's a Palawa man. He is a Tangarung man. I think it's three other mobs as well. He's a Stolen Generations man, 72-year-old Aboriginal elder, highly respected throughout Melbourne. And I sat with him one day. He'd invited me over to go through a bit of a cleansing ceremony, a smoking it was a very uplifting thing. And I sat with him and put to him a quandary in which I'd found myself. And that is that I was about to embark on a, a 10-year project, which I'm still working to achieve over the next few months and start that. But it would mean that I would be financially insecure, that I would not have a home, and that I would just be travelling constantly around Victoria. And I said, Uncle, I just don't know what to do. You know, I know it's the right thing. And he stood up and in his very gravelly voice after grasping me by the, the shoulders and looking me square in the eyes said, Charles, you've just got to trust in Bunjil and trust in the spirits. And I came home from that feeling quite elated and I have no idea why. Maybe it was just that, that faith in me and the justification that I was looking for and said to my my non-Aboriginal mother, who was 89 at the time, well, Mum, this is what Uncle said I should do. And she just looked at me through her roomy eyes and said quite calmly, well, if Uncle has said that, then that's what you must do. So when I think about Bunjil, it's that inherent faith that it, it gave to me through the words of my elder that, yeah, I... I just need to trust in Bunjil and in the spirits and it'll be okay. And quite frankly, even though the project has yet to get well and truly past that first important 
starting date, the lead-up to it has actually been quite right. So to me, who was brought up as a Christian boy, turned into agnostic and then to an atheist, it's going off on another tangent <laughs> well and truly and I'm constantly scanning the eyes for an eagle for Bunjil looking over me. So Bunjil's been empowering. We talked off air about how you mix making a quid with doing a social good or you know, doing the right thing by the mob. How do you mm. manage that? What's important in terms of what you can do for the mob? I don't know if there's anything I can do for the mob. It's more a case of, of what I can do with the mob. Yeah. Uh, that's a very important distinction. It's something that as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we're constantly trying to get across to people. I will get back to your question in a second, but quite often there's that paternalistic attitude from government and from various do-gooders, you know, what can we do for you? Well, you know what? Thanks very much, but how about stop being so paternalistic and patronising and how about what can you do with us? A partnership. And that's the way I see it. It's never a case of what I can do for the mob. It's what I can do with the mob. And through my disconnection or as a result of my disconnection, I've sought, especially over the past 20 years, to just involve myself in community and, and trust in community that it will just steer me in the right direction to the things that I can do with community to help empower community and increase self-determination, which is, of course, fundamental to what we are trying to achieve. And I've been very fortunate in that I have been a journalist for quite a number of years before I understood who and what I was. And I've been able to bring that skill into a lot of what I do right now. So quite often in my work with the Koori Mail newspaper or Radio 3KND, my relationships with other newspapers around the state and with local councils, I'm able to get out there and start writing positive stories about Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people. That's just such an important thing because the media historically has been only too happy to jump on the angry black man or issues of family violence and all these things, which are a direct result, I might add, of 200-odd years of genocide. And I will just say right now, I do stand by that word genocide. I initially didn't really understand just what happened in this country, but after speaking to the great Uncle Robbie Thorpe and I started to understand that, yes, of the five defining points laid out by the United Nations on genocide, Every single one of those five points is met in full in this country. So as a result of all that, there's been so much negativity about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country that every opportunity I have to tell positive stories, to report on fabulous examples of self-determination, of successes, that's what I can do with my community to help in any way I can. And that's what I want to do really for the rest of my life, which leads into the next stage of my life. So what does that future look like and what's your call for action that goes with that? 
Well, th there is one call to action. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But the next stage of my life is, well, I've just come off a period of time working on treaty here in Victoria. And that treaty or that work has involved, first of all, reporting as the treaty correspondent for Radio 3KND. I'm regularly writing features and articles and updates for the Koori Mail newspaper. And I spent six months as a communications officer at the First People's Assembly in Victoria. That was a wonderful opportunity to learn more and to connect with some amazing people, especially the First People's Assembly of Victoria, which is another story in its own right. But it gave me the opportunity to round off a lot of my education, to make those, those connections and really get ready for this next stage, which is travelling in Victoria. I'm hoping for around about 10 years and maybe a bit beyond the confines of Victoria and do what I've wanted to do for so long, and that is just start highlighting and telling stories, positive Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander stories from across this state because there are so many, it's unbelievable, and they are uplifting. And I'll be uplifting not just for our people but for the entire state, which now leads me into the call to action will be inspiring, I believe, because first of all, it will open people's eyes that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are not cap-in-hand people asking for government handouts. We are proud people. We are intelligent people. We are resourceful people. We are responsible and loving and caring people who can achieve so much if we're afforded even just the same opportunity as the rest of the people in our society. So my call to action to people right across this state and country is to open your eyes to the truth for a start. Understand that after generations of, of trauma, of stolen generations, of stolen wages, of massacres, of suppression, the opportunity once there for Aboriginal people will be grasped firmly in two hands, two strong hands, let me tell you, and it will be taken to the heart and totally explored. Charles, thank you. I suspect I've taken more out of this conversation than you have. Look forward to talking to you again, my friend. Thanks. Always, Steve. Thank you so much indeed. Best of luck. It seems such a small thing telling positive stories. Thank you, Charles Parkiner. May you see many eagles along the way. Go well, my friend. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you liked the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.